Welcome in to this special Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Hood. You can follow Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on Instagram and Twitter at WrestlingTWT. Again, it's at WrestlingTWT. Thanks so much, as always, for downloading the podcast. This is a very special podcast that we are doing here today to talk about the life and times of the late Jim Crockett Jr. This will be a tough podcast for me because I'm a National Wrestling Alliance fan. And after that, a WCW fan. So we go back to July of 1985 when I am watching the American Wrestling Association. I'm watching the World Wrestling Federation at the time. There was other independents as well that was still on television, but it was limited. Where I lived in Chicago, we did not have cable until 1990. So... There was a cousin that would have World Championship Wrestling, the theme you hear in the background there. We would have World Championship Wrestling. I would go over a cousin's house because he had the big satellite dish in their backyard. But here at the house, we had the local channels. And WGBO Channel 66, one Saturday night, I'm flipping through the channels, and I see the most incredible reaction to a match that I've ever seen. And keep in mind, I'm a fan of the AWA, so if you remember the AWA or have seen even some clips, the AWA is the home of 10,000 squash matches, 5,000 great promos, and one angle a year. <laughs> but in the National Wrestling Alliance, what I saw was college basketball or college football on steroids, watching Crusher Khrushchev take on Ivan Koloff, or Crusher Khrushchev and Ivan Koloff, take on the Rock and Roll Express. And I saw that match, and I heard a roar like I've never heard before. You've heard of the Road Warrior pop before, or you've heard the pop when The Rock has come out in modern days, or Hulk Hogan, but there's nothing like the Rock and Roll Express in that area for the National Wrestling Alliance when they won the NWA Tag Team Championships. And I saw that, and this blew my TV off of the table. It was that impressive. The shrieking, the loud noises that was coming out of my television because Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express, won the National Wrestling Alliance Tag Team Championships. And I'm like, what is this? What? The NWA at that time became my favorite territory because it was like anything else I saw. The WWF at the time with Vince McMahon as the announcer, Jesse Ventura, Bobby the Brain Heenan. It was kind of lumbering through with some things that were interesting as far as promos, but they didn't have the action. They didn't have the action and the crowd response in places like Madison Square Garden or Boston for the underneath matches. Yeah, sure, they'd pop for Hulk Hogan because he was on top. He was red hot. It was the uh, rockin' wrestling era during that time. And the AWA didn't have anything outside the Road Warriors in which people would be like, oh my God, here come the Road Warriors. But for the NWA, and those are arenas in the South, in the Mid-Atlantic area, they pop for almost anything. I mean, I don't care if you are at the top of the card for Denny Brown for his junior heavyweight championship against Nelson Royal or the main event with Ric Flair versus, versus Dusty Rhodes. I mean, 
the NWA fans were into it. And I was thinking to myself, when is the National Wrestling Alliance going to come to Chicago? Even as a kid watching in July, the summer of 1985, I was thinking to myself, man, if I could ever get there. I'm so envious of wrestling fans in the Carolinas and around the Georgia area that was able to see World Championship Wrestling live at arena events. Because the television was so good, it wasn't like today where you're getting good matches as far as main event talent or middle-of-the-card talent wrestling each other at the same time. No, there were squash matches. But those squash matches were so meaningful because you had wrestlers getting their shit over. Didn't matter if it was a 30-second match or three- or four-minute match. They took on enhancement talent. Some of you call them jobbers. I call them carpenters or enhancement talent because the carpenters build the house. If someone's going to get run over and make opponents look good, which actually should be happening today, by the way, when you have carpenters or that enhancement talent that's there, they make main event talent even stronger because they don't mind getting run over to try to prove a point. This tag team or this woman or this guy is pretty talented because he ran over that guy in two minutes. But after that, the promos. I'd be hard-pressed to find 10 wrestlers that had bad promos in the National Wrestling Alliance. Because if you had a great promo and can speak clearly or speak with power or profundity or whatever you need to do to be able to get over in the National Wrestling Alliance, it was so important that when you had that two minutes to speak, when Tony Schiavone or Bob Caudill or David Crockett, whoever was holding the microphone, it was important for you to be able to get your point across. Because no matter where you were on the card, if you can get your promo over, now you can be on the road and you can be able to get paid and because you're part of the reason why people come to the arena. A good promo draws you in. If you ever follow me on Wrestling TWT in 2021, there are certain wrestlers, independent wrestlers, with the magic of editing or being able to stand in front of a locker or whatever, they can get their point across in two minutes and you're like, oh my God, I want to pay for that because of the promo. If you follow me on Twitter, you see this all the time. Ring of Honor guys are some of the best promo guys in the business. If Ring of Honor could be able to match their business as far as them being able to travel the country, have good TV, if they can match that with the type of talent that they have in their good young talent, they'd be a powerhouse, but they do not. But in the National Wrestling Alliance, if it wasn't for Jim Crockett promotions, if it wasn't for Jim Crockett, I would have never seen Dusty Rhodes live. Now, in my era, I could not wait monthly for the magazines to come out. Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I couldn't wait for Wrestling Eye. My friends in grade school could not wait to go to the White Hen Pantry, the store that was in the area, to be able to see when the magazines came out. Because when you see all the magazines, you saw the rankings. And again, everything is like kayfabe or whatever it was. But the point is, when you're a kid... When you are 10 or 11 years old, 
and you're reading the magazines, you can't wait to see what's going on in other areas where you couldn't find some of these shows on TV. If it wasn't for Jim Crocker Promotions, I would have never seen Dusty Rhodes live because Dusty Rhodes was really predated me even as a kid going to the International Amphitheater to see the AWA as a little kid. I saw Dusty, but I don't remember seeing him actually in the arena. I know he was there, but I'm a little kid with my grandfather going to 43rd and Halsted in Chicago to see uh, AWA wrestling at the time. But to see Dusty Rhodes, it's just like, my God, you talk about a huge crowds to see someone on top. Jim Cracker Promotions made that happen. Dusty was a draw, and to the point where Dusty was so good, Dusty was someone who had the pencil, who was a booker for a while for Jim Crocker Promotions and the National Wrestling Alliance. So Dusty will be prominently featured in this podcast along with Jim Crockett Jr. and his legacy because Dusty's a big part of it, and a lot of it's not good. The in-ring work, yes. Out of the ring, You'll hear about it right here on this podcast. And I'm going to talk about, because Jim Crockett has passed away and because Jim has talked about it himself, for the first time ever, I'm going to talk about Dusty Rhodes and what his legacy is outside of the ring. So we'll get to that. Ric Flair. I saw Ric Flair in the magazines. I said, look at this guy in this glorious robe, this flowing robe. I said, that guy's cool. He was Nick Bockwinkle turned up to 11. Nick Bockwinkle also was a big champion in the American Wrestling Association. And he was the champion that I was drawn to first as a kid. Even though he was a heel, he was just a guy that I enjoyed watching for a long time. And when I see Ric Flair with those robes and talking about women and talking about, I meet you at the Marriott in Baltimore. You got to be 18 years or older, you know, meet me at the bar. I mean, that's crazy television in the 80s, but again, that's part of Jim Crocker Promotions. It's wrestlers that are living the gimmick. Dusty Rhodes, as the everyman, was living the gimmick. Ric Flair, as you see now, even in 2021, is living the gimmick, wearing suits, wearing jewelry, wearing Rolexes, wearing the finest shoes, because he's living the gimmick. But he lived it in a big way during Jim Crocker Promotions. If it wasn't for Jim Crocker Promotions, I don't see the Rock and Roll Express. I mentioned the first NWA match I saw on Worldwide Wrestling was the Russians against the Rock and Roll Express. It was amazing. I don't get a chance to see Tully Blanchard. I don't see Arn Anderson. I don't see Lex Luger if it's not for Jim Crocker Promotions. I didn't see his start in Florida. We didn't get Florida wrestling, Florida championship wrestling. We didn't get that. Not in Chicago, not where I'm from. If it wasn't for Jim Crocker Promotions, I don't get a chance to see uh, Jim Cornette in the Midnight Express. When I saw the National Wrestling Alliance and when I saw the Midnight Express and their battles, their epic battles, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, hour, uh, any kind of match you think can think of, I fell in love with Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express because that was my favorite tag team. During that time, when you could turn the clock back, Older wrestlers are like, the, you know, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane or Bobby Eaton and Dennis Condre at the time in 1985 were doing too much. <laughs> we fast forward to the modern day and you have those in that era in the 80s that say, oh, the young bucks are doing way too much. Or the tag teams of the day are way, doing way too much. They'd say the same thing about Jim Cornette and the Men I Express during that time. I just find that funny. 
if it wasn't for Jim Crockett Promotions, I don't get a chance to see the Garvins. I don't see uh, Jimmy Garvin or Ron Garvin. I don't get a chance to see Nikita Koloff. And most importantly, if I am not tuned in to Jim Crockett Promotions, because I didn't have Mid-South either, clearly, because I don't live in Louisiana or Oklahoma, so I didn't get the Mid-South TV, but I read about all these guys in the magazines. But if it wasn't for Jim Crockett Promotions, I don't see Magnum TA. Terry Allen was supposed to be the next star for the National Wrestling Alliance. He was cut down because of a vehicle accident that had took place in Virginia, I believe, in Norfolk. Might have been in Charlotte. Um, but it was in that area for the NWA. And he never recovered from that accident to get back into the ring. But he was the next guy. He was supposed to beat Ric Flair for the NWA championship. He was probably going to go on to Vince and be a star in the WWE. Maybe. Who knows? But the accident cut him down to where he could not wrestle anymore. But Matthew T.A., for the time that we saw him in that first blood match against Tully Blanchard, his matches with uh, Nikita Koloff, the best of seven against Nikita Koloff, if you haven't seen any of this stuff, you really should watch it. If it's not your cup of tea, I'm not going to tell you how to fan, but I'm just telling you, as far as excitement in the ring, as far as the fans just getting wrapped up into a rivalry, and it's based on the promo, it's based on trying to really get into the characters that you see in the ring. Those guys, they wrestled most nights, over 325 nights on the road. And of course, if you live in a territory like Charlotte, you were home some nights, but not many nights, because as you will hear, Jim Crocker Promotions became way too big, way too quickly. I'll agree with Jim Cornette only to an extent. Jim Cornette, who was also part of the National Wrestling Alliance, as a manager for the Midnight Express, he said, you know, wrestling was never meant to be national. And that is true to an extent. At the time that I was watching professional wrestling, Professional wrestling was supposed to be territorial. It was supposed to be, okay, Portland, you take care of that area in the Pacific Northwest. You know, in San Francisco, San Francisco, Oakland, you take care of your area. Los Angeles has had their area. Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, El Paso, Amarillo had their offices. Um, same thing with Louisiana and Oklahoma. The same thing with Indianapolis. Same thing in... in um, Places like the Carolinas and the Mid-Atlantic area for Jim Crocker Promotions. Same thing when the whole, the whole state of Florida, Georgia had their territory. New York with the McMahons had their, say, you know, the Canada, especially Western Canada, Eastern Canada. They all had places to work. Kind of like in some ways the independence that you see now in 2021. Where you can be able to go to an, a good independent, find a good independent place and say, Okay, I can see myself rolling in here, you know, once a month for a card. The only difference is with the territorial system from way back when, from the 80s that I remember, that you can stay in a territory for a year or two and make really good money. Because if you're over, you'll it doesn't matter if everyone could see you, that area could see you, that territory, 
as I mentioned, the Portland Territory where Don Owen could see you. Uh, you go work for Dallas, work for Fritz von Erich in Dallas. You can work for Joe Blanchard, Tully's dad in San Antonio. You can work for the Funks in Amarillo. You can work for, you know, for Bill Watts in Louisiana and Oklahoma in Mississippi in that area. You work for Eddie Graham in Florida. All across the country, there are places to work in the territorial system. But there was something about the Crockett's in which if you worked in the Mid-Atlantic area, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, even though on its television, they were just in a small television arena, a little television studio. Hell, Memphis was in a small television studio. So many examples of some of these big companies, big territorial companies, they would just do their TV in a small studio. And then they would promote the hell out of their bigger cards in bigger arenas. And Jim Crockett in Charlotte and Raleigh and in North Carolina, South Carolina, in that area, he was a master promoter. Imagine continuing to make money hand over fist because people want to see your show. And before Jim Crockett Jr., his dad was a great booker. He would deal with the Sam Munchniks from St. Louis, who was a promoter in that area, and and Vince McMahon Sr., and so many others across the way. And so there was this handshake agreement with Jim Crockett Sr. and the other promoters that, hey, this is our territory. You can't cross over. We can exchange talent, but you can't come into my territory because I've established a fan base here. Vince McMahon Jr. said, F all that. I'm going to take over the world. It started with the Ganyas in Minneapolis, St. Paul with the AWA, and he just went around to territory to territory taking different talent. That's what he wanted to do. After his dad passed away, Vince McMahon Jr. says, I'm going to take over the world. He did. But then, no matter how much money he's making, no matter how much acclaim that he has, he's number one all time as far as being a professional wrestling promoter. There's no doubt about that. You can't take anything away from him. I know Tony Khan's trying to nip at his heels, but what Vince has done is he's created a legacy. He's also put himself in a position where uh, he's taken so much talent, there's no competition. You're a wrestling promoter, you're at the top of the world, and now what, right? And you can tell Vince has been bored over the years and trying to figure out, okay, so I'll be a success in wrestling and a success in the World Body Federation, you know, or I'm going to be a success in my own football league who failed twice. I'm going to be a success doing all these different things. I'm going to be, you know, on the top of vitamins and pills and all. No, he's been a wrestling promoter. And probably, from his own admission, if you really talk to him, probably frustrated. Bought WCW, took all the talent away from different territories. And Bruce Pritchard tells a story. Bruce Pritchard, who's back with the WWE, has asked the question, you know, why did Vince say to me at some point, man, what did I do to our business? What you did is you capitalized on it, including capitalized on the talent for Jim Crockett Jr., So let us go now and hear from so many that knew Jim Crockett and uh, and talk about his career. It's a lot of different voices that you'll hear, and we'll just narrate and just kind of take a step back because for me, this is difficult because I loved the National Wrestling Alliance and the guy that was running the NWA, Jim Crockett Jr., he, he wasn't in music videos and he wasn't a guy that was, you know... Uh, just wanted to put himself in the, on the television every single week. Some weeks he did. 
because he was an authority figure. He wasn't uh, the brightest personality, but he was a businessman. But just like many promoters uh, across the landscape of wrestling, he got caught up trying to go too big too soon. So let us uh, hear from some that knew him. And also you will hear from Jim Crockett Jr. on TWT. James Allen Crockett Jr. was an American professional wrestling promoter. From 1973 to 1989, he was part owner of Jim Crockett Promotions, a wrestling company affiliated with the National Wrestling Alliance. From 1976 to 1987, Jim Crockett Promotions also owned the Charlotte Orioles, a minor league baseball team based in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Winston-Salem Polar Twins in the Southern Hockey League from 1974 to 1975. Born to Jim Crockett and Elizabeth Crockett in Charlotte, Jim Jr. graduated from Myers Park High School in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1960. He and his younger siblings were largely uninvolved in professional wrestling until their father's death in 1973. The elder Crockett had been a promoter of wrestling and other forms of entertainment since 1931. Although Jim Crockett Sr. had decided his son-in-law John Ringley would run JCP, Jim Jr. reluctantly took over ownership of the company that same year. Crockett brought in wrestler George Scott as head booker, and he signed wrestlers from across the country, from veterans such as Wahoo McDaniel to younger wrestlers like Ric Flair. In 1980, Crockett was elected to his first term as NWA president, which ended in 1982. Thank you for watching. Like and subscribe if you would like to view more of our videos. So that's the official bio of Jim Crockett. So there's so many others that were able to talk about the life and times of Jim Crockett, and we'll cover them right here. We'll start first with Tony Schiavone. Tony Schiavone was hired by the Crockett family because he was first a minor league baseball announcer on a minor league baseball team that was owned by the Crockett family. And he parlayed that into becoming one of the lead announcers for Jim Crockett Promotions and National Wrestling Alliance Television. So Tony Schiavone was with Conrad Thompson, and Tony gave his quick thoughts uh, about Jim Crockett and his legacy. Conrad Thompson uh, with his thoughts as well about Jim Crockett and what he brought to the wrestling business. But Jim Crockett made sure there was somewhere else to go. And I just think the historical significance of his contribution sort of gets glossed over. And I wanted to highlight it because the localized promo and the four horsemen and Flair becoming the man and, you know, war games and great American bash and Starcade. There's so many of his things, his innovations that still matter to people a lot, but it feels like nobody really considers him in the same vein they do of Vince McMahon. And I sort of made the analogy to the group chat the other day and Tony, you're a comic book guy, so you can correct me on this. Mm-hmm. That once upon a time, the NWA, and for lack of a better word, Jim Crockett Promotions, was uh, the chief rival of the WWF. Okay. And of course, the WWF may have shaken out to be Marvel, but that doesn't mean that DC Comics wasn't any good and didn't have any contributions. I mean, I think uh, Batman is a DC guy, and hey, uh, that's Ric Flair. Yeah. The point is... You know, this this thing once upon a time was sort of a tight race. It was a two-horse race, and, you know, one one was going to win. And, yes, the Avengers and Marvel and all of that dwarfed the success of whatever DC Comics had. But that doesn't mean that DC wasn't important. 
And I think that's sort of the analogy I want to use for Jim Crockett and, and the NWA. Yeah, that's a very good analogy. And when, when I think about it, and you mentioned comic, you know, we've talked about uh, my graphic novel is coming yeah. out soon. And uh, there's a Kickstarter uh, coming out. I'm, I want to give you the, uh, throw out the website here where you can go and, and just get notifications about it. In that graphic comic, it talks about, man, I can't, I, I can't uh, overstate this enough. I'm, I'm trying to think about the big moments in my career right? that led me here. And to me, I go back to the biggest moment in my career was going into Jim Crockett's office, sitting down with Jimmy, and Jimmy being very serious like he was and telling me that what I was about to see when they take me to the back, what I was about to see is to stay in this building. Mm. And he told me that in all seriousness. And I felt at that time that I was now a part of this, part of something that I really passionately loved, right? And I thought, now I'm crossing over. I didn't know exactly what I would see or what he was talking about, but I knew there was something going on that not many people would be on the inside of. So I took that seriously. And that's why throughout the years that when I would see or hear about reports going on to Dave Meltzer or Wade Keller or the dirt sheets, I would, it would kind of piss me off because I was thinking those guys were probably told the same thing. And they, they would go out and stooge off or talk about what went on. So anyway, so I had that meeting. He brought in Gene Anderson. And I've, I know I've told this story before. Gene and I walked from Jimmy's office back the back hallway and walked through the garage there and opened that double doors, and there was everybody. There was my freaking childhood. There was Ricky Steamboat. Not really my child childhood, but my teenage years and my college years uh, from the 10th grade on. Uh, there was Ricky Steamboat. There was Walker McDaniel. There was Greg Valentine. Uh, there was Ric Flair. And all of a sudden now, I'm in this world, and they're all friends. And I had been in the other world to where they were enemies. And it was like it was like one of the one of the biggest moments of my life, no doubt. And I never will forget Greg Valentine went to Gene Anderson. I and I, I could see it and I heard it. And and Valentine says, Hey, what's this guy doing back here? Right? So like all of a sudden now, I'm that they're really, really protective of smartening up people. Right. And and Gene let him know exactly what uh, what was going on with me, that I would be working with Bill Ward, and eventually I replaced Bill Ward, uh, which is, is sad anyway. I, I knew that was coming, because I knew Bill was very, very old, and I knew that's why they brought me in. But that meeting with Jimmy Crockett, and I know this, I sound like Eric now, going on and on and on and on and on, but my meeting with Jimmy Crockett was the moment in my career that started everything for me. Tony Schiavone talking with Conrad Thompson about his memories of Jim Crockett promotions. Jim Crockett opens the door and says, this is your new life now where baby faces and heels are talking over finishes. And it's an interesting time, especially when you're a young guy in the wrestling business, you know, wrestling only one way because you've been a fan because he was a fan with mid Atlantic being in, in his area. Cause Tony grew up in Virginia and to see the young bloods and, Don Cornoodle and Sergeant Slaughter and all these wrestlers, and now he becomes an announcer. It's like, wow. But Jim Crockett Promotions opened the door for Tony. How about J.J. Dillon? J. 
J.J. Dillon, a major factor as the leader of the Four Horsemen, but also worked for Jim Crocker Promotions every day in the office next to Dusty Rhodes. Let's lay this out. The Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson, in some ways, that rivalry was in the National Wrestling Alliance. And actually kind of was in some ways because Ric Flair is a Lakers fan, at least at the time in the 80s, and Dusty Rhodes was a Celtics fan. But the point is, is that both of these two were totally different. Ric Flair was pop and circumstance. The way that he would dress everything else in Dusty Rhodes was the common man. And he was an everyman in the NWA, but also was a booker. He had the pencil. So it was very strenuous where the formula was always Flair's a champion. He gets beat to death and Flair escapes with the championship via disqualification. Dusty Rhodes almost had him. Madam T.A. almost had Flair. You know, on and on and on of different wrestlers that almost won the championship. And that same formula extended out to the Four Horsemen of Tully Blanchard, R. Anderson, Ole Anderson, Ric Flair, managed by J.J. Dillon, where the Four Horsemen would talk a great promo and talk about exactly what was going on and exactly how they saw things. But when you got a ticket and go to the arena, it was a different story because it was Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA and it was Jimmy Valiant and so many others that would beat the living crap out of the horsemen every night, <laughs> every night. So Dusty Rhodes always was on top, but only winning by disqualification, not by pinfall, because the horsemen had so many championships. Arn Anderson, longtime TV champion, or Tully Blanchard, longtime national champion, or Ric Flair, the world champion, or Ole and Arn Anderson, the tag team champions. I mean, just on and on. They would be the champions. So the formula is the heels have the championships and the baby faces do the chasing, but the baby faces get over by making the heels bleed and sweat and pay the price every night up and down the roads. I want you to think about that. If you were a wrestler and realizing that 300 days a year, you're getting, you're bleeding and you are getting beat down and you're not getting any comeuppance. You're not getting your heat back. Dusty Rhodes made sure that some of the wrestlers on the other side did not get their heat. Some thoughts from JJ Dillon talking about, Flair and Rhodes and working with Jim Crockett promotions. I instead, I had a, a good, great relationship with Jimmy Crockett and business was so good. And so, and this would happen maybe once every six months, every nine months. It wasn't like it was a, a regular thing once a month having to do this. I, I would... Because Dusty off would finish and he would leave and I'd be in the office with Gene and, and Jimmy would be there. And I'd say to Jimmy, you know, can I have a couple of minutes with you? Yes, come in, close the door. What's going on? And I would tell him, I'd say, I'm in the dressing room with Flair and uh, Flair is saying, you know, saying that Dusty's a glory hound and he's beating us every night and we're going to die off and not be able to get our heat back. And and asking me, don't you say something to Dusty? And so I could share the, the mood and how intense that mood was with Jimmy Crockett. And Jimmy would listen to me and he'd say, okay, thank you. That's all he'd say. And I wouldn't ask him, what are you going to do about it? Or I, it just was. And this was not something that I went in every couple of weeks or every month. This would be something where 
I would realize that that flair was now just it was like it was getting to a boiling point and before it got to that boiling point I wanted to make Jimmy aware of it and next day in the dressing or, or like we maybe have a day off or something and Rick would come to the dressing room and he'd be like a whole different person and he'd say ah oh, and he said I used to be close to Jimmy Crockett and he'd say I'd have dinner with him and Myra all the time and he called me and he said, hey, we haven't done it for a while. Why don't you come on over to the house and have dinner? And I went over and, you know, I, I talked a few things about business. And by the time I was, was done, Jimmy had me feeling so good about everything we'd accomplished and how well things were going and how he was watching what was going on and wouldn't let things get out of hand. And, and, and so I'm sitting there listening and... And I didn't tell him that I had a private conversation with Jimmy. And Jimmy knew what to say to Flair to put Flair at ease, that everything was okay, that Jimmy was on top of it. It wasn't like Dusty was uh, running with the ship and it was out of Jimmy's control. And Jimmy would know when was the right time to go and have a private conversation with Dusty about you know, we got to be careful. We don't we don't want to take the, the steam off of these guys. Uh, and whether it was doing that little angle on TV to put some steam back on us or what. But it, it was like I had a great relationship with Dusty. I loved that man. I, I generally loved him like a brother. And had such success with him financially and uh you know, he and Michelle, wonderful people. And I watched his two sons grow up. And uh, nobody ever saw me socialize with Dusty. It was like on rare occasions that uh, around the holidays, I would invite, be invited over to the house. And there would be nobody, no outsiders there. And nobody would even know that I was there. And that was the relationship that I had with Dusty. And... I have to look at all the success I had was because of how Dusty viewed me and how, how what my role was in that big puzzle, and I didn't I didn't need I didn't need to have all the other guys know that oh you know I'm tight with Dusty and everything is cool. No, I I I never said anything to anybody about anything. Just business was good. I had no complaints. And I just knew when the conversation, because I'm with the heels in the dressing room with Flair, and, and, and sometimes Flair would be the one to kind of fuel it, where guys, ah, Dusty's going to kill us off. You know, he's beating us every night, leaving, you know, we're bleeding, and then he's beating us too, and, and we're left laying in the ring, and he's going to kill our heat. We'll never get it back. Um, I, you know, I had a sense of, they, somebody like Flair would push the panic button, and I had confidence that uh, everything was better than what Rick felt it was. And I, and at the same time, I understood, I understood Rick's concern too. And I would convey it, you know. And it may, like I say, it might be once in nine months, but I would finally pull Jimmy off and I'd say, "Jimmy got a little problem," and 
you know, usually I can listen to them and the guy said, well, you're there with them. Don't you tell, don't you talk to them every day? <laughs> and, and I wouldn't, every time that happened, go to, go to Jimmy, I would sense when it was reaching a boiling over point. And before somebody did something or said something stupid, I would go to Jimmy and then it would be something as simple as Jimmy going into Flair and say, you haven't been over to the house with Myra and I had to have dinner for a while. You know, why don't you come over? And Rick would go over, and Jimmy knew the right things to say to Rick to kind of put Rick's mind at ease. The business was great and all was well, and and Rick would have a chance to maybe make a comment about getting beat every night, and Jimmy could just say, yeah, I, I'm watching it. I'm not going to let it get out of hand. And that would be enough to put Rick's mind at ease. J.J. Dillon, who we just saw on All Elite Wrestling, come out with FTR, and Tully Blanchard, we just saw this on TNT. This, it is just interesting irony. I don't know how else to put it, to for a lack of better term. To see FTR, who loved the National Wrestling Alliance, loved the Horsemen, loved the Mid-Atlantic area, and they're two young guys, but they've watched all the films, and they, those two want to be Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson from the NWA. That's what they want, model their style after. And to see those two with Tully Blanchard wrestling for the first time in forever, and it's, uh, since 1989. And then J.J. Dillon, who's never aged, by the way. He looks today in 2021 as he looked in 1985. Crazy, right? And they're all on TV together. They're all on TV together on All Elite Wrestling. And that same night that all four came to ringside, Jim Crockett passed away on that Wednesday. That's crazy. <laughs> the person in Jim Crockett Promotions that brought the NWA to uh, TBS at the time, a Turner Broadcasting Television Network, now you see All Elite Wrestling on TNT, another Turner Television Network. It's amazing, the cycle of life in professional wrestling, how that worked. But it did. And that same night that we saw J.J. return for a long time and Tully Blanchard in the ring, Jim Crockett passed away. Larry Zabisco. <laughs> Larry's always got things to say. He's always interesting. If some of you remember him as a color analyst for Money Nitro, uh, but was an AWA heavyweight champion, wrestled in the National Wrestling Alliance as well uh, in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and he wrestled and knew that there was a relationship between the AWA and the NWA from time to time. The problem is Jim Crockett and Vern Gagne did not get along very well. Vern was running the AWA and Jim Crockett ran the National Wrestling Alliance, so they didn't get along very well. But, but Larry uh, you know, spent time in the NWA and gave his thoughts about Jim Crockett Jr. and the NWA and AWA relationship. In the AWA, you know, Vince Broughton, Hogan, Bobby Heenan, Dean Jean, and Jesse the Body. And from you know, out west, they brought in the Junkyard Dog. And from the NWA, they brought in Snooker and Viper and Macho. So I kind of lucked out in a way where the AWA and the NWA always needed a top guy. Because all the top guys went to the WWF, which, you know. So I just, it was just a thing where, you know, I just kept going back and forth. And it was funny with... Jim Crockett one time, because it was Jim and then Davy Crockett, which, good guys. And Davy Crockett, you know, the famous name of old Davy Crockett guy. Mm -hmm. It was funny one time, because Dusty was doing, like, 
running the office kind of with the wrestling, but it was running it for the Crockett's. And I did an interview one time in Georgia and I was wrestling Tommy Rich and had a feud with Tommy Rich going. And the Crockett's are listening and I do this interview and I'm saying, you know, kind of nasty stuff. Was, you know, I, was an, I was an a-hole. And I was saying, when I'm done with you, Tommy, they're gonna carve a picture of your face on Stone Mountain, Georgia, right next to Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jefferson and all of the great American losers. And it pissed Jim Crockett off. I mean, the interview was so good. I pissed off the promoter because he was a Southern boy. So he said he wanted to get rid of me. And Dusty said, well, you can't get rid of Larry. People hate him and he just stands there. You know, he does great. But it was a funny bit. And I'm sad to see Jim go. I mean, the Crockett's were good guys. Well, how was he How was he specifically? Because obviously he would have, he'd have a hand in, um, well, would he have any, any hand in uh, booking or, you know, making decisions in, in that era? And uh, well, how was he made- boss? Yeah, they made decisions, but their decisions went along with really because, I mean, Ole Anderson would be like the booker for a while. Dusty was the booker for a while. And the Crockett's kind of you know, ran the business and did the connections with the arenas and the contracts and TBS, you know, but really didn't run a lot of the wrestling because there was guys, you know, like Ole and Dusty and that knew more than the Crockett's about the wrestling part. They were more the business part. And their mother was still alive and really ran the purse strings. She's the one that finally pulled the purse strings shut and then they sold out to Turner in 1990 or whatever, became WCW. But the Crockett's were still there working for WCW too. So, so obviously there, so the Crockett's weren't in the wrestling business, but they were definitely, or Jim was definitely in charge of buying the Jumbo Jets. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it was their business and they ran it, but they had, in terms of the wrestling matches and stuff, it was Dusty and Ole and some other guys, or some of the wrestlers would put their input in, you know. Yeah. So it's sort of a bigger question, really. But um, as far as Jim Crockett Jr. goes, do you think he doesn't get enough credit for almost saving the NWA, maybe in the, in the late, uh, in the in mid '80s, and carrying it on for another few years nationally? Well, they may have. You know, the interesting thing was, you know, Vince had a big head start and doing good, and. Uh, the AWA and the NWA Crockett's and the Ganyas, you know, I was going back and forth, but they uh, had guys in the AWA that wrestled each other a thousand times. They Bob went one, Greg Ganya. And the AW and the N- NWA had guys, you know, Flair and Dusty or Flair and Steamboat. I mean, they wrestled each other a thousand times. So the Crockett's and the Ganyas made a deal and tried working together. And then they started running around big shows in the Meadowlands, which was like the old you know, Vince territory, and, and started running some big shows together, trying to compete against the WWE. And uh, it's an interesting story, really, because if you look at the dolls, the doll merchandise came out like in 1985-ish or so, 84, 85. And the AWA had action figures that came out two in a box and they'd be like you know two awa guys in there and the nwa had their action figures too but when the awa action figure box came out with me it was one my doll from the awa and one rick flair doll from the nwa because when the dolls came out 
me and Flair were supposed to be having a big feud because the NWA and the AWA were going to turn on each other and basically have one group invade some show one night, which really was the same idea that happened 10, 11 years later called the New World Order, where it looked like one group invaded the other group. And at the last minute, the Crockett's and the Ganyas couldn't just sign the damn deal. It was like too many cooks, you know, one along at this one. So it never happened, but it was so late. And that's why me and Flair came out in the same box, even though we never wrestled each other because we were supposed to back in, you know, 1984, 85, whatever it was. Move now to Nature Boy Ric Flair. And Rick is doing a shoot interview. You can find this on YouTube. And he's talking about different promotions and promoters that he worked with. You hear him talk about Jim Crockett promotions as well several times in the clip we're going to hear right now. But really, the straw that stirred the drink for the National Wrestling Alliance under Jim Crockett promotions was uh, was Ric Flair, but he wrestled a lot of different areas as the NWA champion. Just want to give you a little glimpse of how what he thought of other territories and Jim Crockett as well. Because that was the, probably the only time where the NWA, I know it was yeah. already dwindling, but it was... Yeah, my first title run, I worked for the Von Erics, obviously. I worked for Eddie. Um, uh, the funks were closed down at that time. I worked in St. Louis for Sam, I worked in Kansas City for, for Bob and Harley and um, Pat O'Connor and Bob Brown, Georgia for Barnett. Um, and of course, the Crockett's all over the, the Mid-Atlantic area. Um, Japan for Baba. Um, Don Owens in Oregon and Washington. Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico. Don in Trinidad. <laughs> uh, the, uh, you obviously mentioned Geigel was one of probably your least favorite place to be. On the other end of the spectrum, where were some of the better places to work at that time? Um, away from home? Yes. Florida was the Mac Daddy. Texas, I had fun in Texas, too. I had fun everywhere, but I had a lot of fun there. Did, I love going to St. Louis on Friday nights. I can tell you that was, that was a great experience. Every wrestler should have been able to walk that in our ring as a main event champion or again, champion or challenger. In the St. Louis uh, Kiel Auditorium atmosphere was off the hook. I, I, later, I was going to ask you some other questions, but this would be a good thing. Some of the historic venues that you wrestled in, mm-hmm. I was going to ask you maybe to compare, like what made them special to, compared to other ones? You know, you mentioned the Kiel. Well, the Kiel, of course, the, the history of the of the NWA. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful I'm relatively right in saying this, but I mean, for anybody from Fez um, and all those guys of yesteryear, Carpentier, uh, Woofer Billy Watson, Kowalski, Kaniski, the Funks, I mean, there were so many huge names. Yukon, Eric, I mean, um, you know, between St. Louis and Chicago, you know, from the 50s, 60s, Rogers, O'Connor, I mean, I'm leaving names out, but Aubrey, great, great wrestler. He came through St. Louis, and if you didn't go through St. Louis, you weren't great. That's just the way it was. And they, I mean, everybody worked there. Guys from AWA worked there, guys from NWA, but you had to get invited. No one, you didn't call them, they called you. <clears throat> so when I got the call the first time, I was just thrilled to walk, just walk around the hallway going, you know, there's Jack Briscoe, there's Gene Kaniski, you know, all the guys I, even though I'm not that much older, younger than Jack, I'm probably about 10 years younger than Jack, but I mean, I was just thrilled 
to be in that, that area. And then, of course, as I became the champion and I'm wrestling these guys, it's phenomenal. You'd mentioned a few times uh, in your book that you felt like you were almost, they set you up to fail for your first title run. Uh, particularly, you mentioned Florida. Where they, Florida, for sure. Where they, they didn't give you some strong opponents to work against. Do you think overall that maybe you were set up to try to fail because for political reasons, they gave in to... Uh, I don't I mean, I don't, I'm not overwhelmed with that thought, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that uh, Florida for sure didn't want me there, you know, and they, I mean, Eddie disappeared, Dusty moved to the Carolinas, I think, um, which was which was a good move for him. I mean, I helped him get that position with the Crockett's, but I mean, it was J.J. Dillon was booking the territory and I was working with... Uh, God, I can't his name. Tall black guy. Real nice guy. Butch Reed. But never held in that light of being championship material. And I was just working every night and hour with, you know, this is before they resurrected Florida. <clears throat> Which clearly they did later on. Mm -hmm. I'm not even, no, Dustin in 81 wasn't even, I'm not sure where he was. I think he was just traveling around in Georgia and all that. Um, but the logical thing to have been was me come back around, go through Florida with Dusty for the title. And I mean, not existing. Harley took a vacation. Dusty, not, not by design, but I mean, everybody was just kind of laying back. So I don't think I was set up to fail, but I don't think everybody was, you know, they weren't over the top about seeming to be successful. Or Crockett. But we, we killed them in the Carolinas. Right. And I, I did well in St. Louis, and I did well in the uh, Bonnerick. Couldn't hold me back there because I had someone to work with. <clears throat> and of course, I did well in Georgia. Talk about some of the feuds you had in Georgia in that first title run. Uh, the only, only one feud the whole time was with uh, Tommy Rich. Yeah, I worked with Tommy almost exclusively the first year. Do you think he was a, a, a top-level performer? Because he had the belt before you mm -hmm. and then kind of just faded his career after. Yeah, I, um, I think Tommy was a guy with incredible popularity, a good fire. He was a good performer. You know, I think he worked real hard in the ring. I, I wrestled Tommy many hours, brothers. I can't. Say anything but good things about Tommy Rich, you know. Um, I think he had some personal stuff going on, but God, who am I to talk about personal issues? <laughs> so, I mean, I think he held himself back a little bit. But he clearly was a big star, and he was over. And the crowds loved him. The girls loved him. He was easy to work with. A very, very good worker. And, he, and, and a nice guy. And he epitomized a guy who probably on the national, he never really... Drew on the national level, but as a regional star, he was as big as a oh, regional star at that sure. time. Is Wildfire Tom Rich, he was huge. Talk about something. Not just regional, because they went into Ohio back then. He was huge in Ohio, too. I mean, that that WTBS took off in Ohio. They started going that. So, you know, we did Canton, Columbus, Cleveland, um, but eight towns up there. They were killing them, man. I mean, Columbus, that, that new building, which is there, still there. Selling that baby out, $55,000. That wasn't her $55,000 house was unheard of. They've opened it up with Andre the Giant. He had him one time, and it went the next day. He sold the Columbus out for three or four years. Um, Cleveland did well, downtown. Canton did great. Um, Help me out. Cincinnati was on fire, but it was about 10 towns. They did very well. And they went up there once a month for a week. They did great. Who are some of the other, uh, I guess, regional stars that you remember working in your first title run? Uh, regional stars? Um, well, I worked with Bob Brown, Rufus Jones, in the uh, um, uh, Kansas City area. Um, worked with Harley some. 
who wasn't a regional star, but if he worked, uh, he to Hollywood work usually one night a week or two if I was there for a week. Maybe Wichita and Kansas City. But I couldn't wrestle hardly every time I came in either. So it was a... Um, and then they brought Brody in periodically, which was great. We sold out with Brody all the time too. But um, the Von Erics at that point were still just regional stars. Um, in Florida, I worked with uh, later on Regionally, I mean, before they became big stars, with Barry Windham, and I worked with Mike Rotundo, uh, Skip Young, Mike Graham. At Florida, I worked with everybody. It was, you know, I worked with Billy Jack. Um, a big run with him, not only in Oregon, but as the, as well there. Um, that's, that's what I'm saying. That I've worked with everybody one time or another. But Florida didn't really take back off and really get going until Dusty came back in, and then we turned Florida upside down. We were crazy. Florida went down. I was making big money, too, for Florida money, which was hard to squeeze. <laughs> Your first they, time... could, they couldn't count there, either. <laughs> <laughs> I always had that problem, huh? Yeah. Um, how long, when, when you were given the belt the first time, was there an expectation on how long you were going to hold this belt? No. None. I think it was all up to me. And when you dropped it to Harley... Was was this a, you had mentioned in your book that Harley was trying to preserve some of his home turf with Vince McMahon moving in at that time? Mm -hmm. Do you think it was that was more so the reason to drop the belt, or was it really an anticipation of building up the rematch for Starcade? No, no, I think it was Harley saying they're going to have to beat me, really beat me, to come into my territory. If <laughs> then Harley, it was all about that. I had no problem losing that Harley. All was about we had a great match, we had a better match in St. Louis than we had when I won it back. Mm -hmm. Um, no, I loved working on it. I had no problem losing it either. I, mean, I, I, you know, in looking back on it, I've said this a hundred times, I was a much better performer and much more skilled the second time I got it. Second time I got it, I knew where I was at. There was no, they were going to have to fight me to get it off me. But you know, Harley, Harley wanted to be the, the world champion when those guys came knocking. And he was. And he told them. And nobody said boo, just so you know. <laughs> Whatever you've heard about anybody smarting off to Harley Race, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. He walked into the dressing room, you know, one night when I was wrestling Brody. Looked their way around, and he would tore them all up a new asshole. They didn't say shit. Nobody said boo. Or the whole WWE wrestling, WWF wrestling room, or in the drop locker room. He Harley didn't, Harley commanded a lot of respect and got it, because they were in his town. And he walked over and told them all, and a lot of them were his friends, but he took, he thought, he took that so serious back then. I was actually surprised that he ended up going to work later on. And, I mean, but he was so respected. I'm glad he did. But Harley was not shy about telling you what he thought. And he would not. If he said it to you, he'd say it to your face, <laughs> which you couldn't help. You couldn't knock him for that. And, and, and no, I don't think Vince ever disrespected Harley for standing his ground. You know. And we certainly didn't hold it against him. So. No. from Ric Flair talking about Jim Crockett a little bit, but also talked about him bouncing around from territory to territory, especially when he took on Harley Race the first time or the second time around. That was under the National Wrestling Alliance banner because they were fighting wrestling for the NWA championship. Well, this is part one of two parts 
of our look at Jim Crockett Jr. In part two, you will hear from the man, Jim Crockett Jr., with a sit-down interview about some of the things he liked and didn't like about his tenure running the wrestling business. Also, you'll hear from Jim Ross, from Jim Cornette, from Dave Meltzer, and a few others as we do part two of our celebration of the life of Jim Crockett Jr. Crockett, you talk about great promoters. He's one of the all-time greats, and we're celebrating him right here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Make sure that you share this podcast with others. Let them know we're talking wrestling. Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on the ESPN Chicago app and wherever you download TWT.